Let's open together in prayer, and then we'll get right into our study this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, and we are rejoicing this morning that we can gather together once again. Lord, we have looked forward to this day, we've looked forward to this time when we as the brethren can gather together to worship in spirit and in truth, to proclaim and preach the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we are certainly thankful today to have certainty of our faith. We are, cert we are certain that we have been redeemed. We are certain that the blood of Jesus Christ has atoned for our sin. And Lord, today as we assemble freely this morning, Lord, we know that apart from the power of the Spirit, we would not be able to understand a single word of the written word of God. Lord, help our faith to be steadfast and sure. Help us today to be reminded repeatedly about how good you have been to us, how unworthy we are to receive even a single benefit or a single blessing from your hand. Yet in your sovereign grace, you have poured out blessings beyond measure. Uh, you have accepted us in the beloved. You have adopted us as your children. And may these precious truths resonate not just in our minds, but may they resonate through our heart and through our soul uh, that leads to words of praise. May we have a spirit of praise and words of thanksgiving always upon our lips. Father, help us now as we look to the study this morning. Forgive us of our transgressions against you. Lord, we know that they are daily, and we need a daily cleansing. We need daily repentance. And may our hearts be right before you, even before we read a single word from the Bible this morning. Father, thank you for each one that's here today. Be with those that are away from us this morning. Pray you give them uh, safety as they return. Father, thank you for all that you've already accomplished and all that has been done through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And we rejoice in those truths today. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right, if you would, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin there this morning. 2 Timothy chapter number 1. And then we will uh, be looking at uh, paragraph 2 uh, of chapter 14 of saving faith. So as we think about our study this morning, uh, we are dealing with a section of the, the confession um, that is often um, a number of weeks are typically would be spent in a confessional study on this particular passage, on this particular paragraph. And when we talk about saving faith, we realize we're talking about uh, that which we are already in possession of. Uh, we are not earning saving faith, uh, nor are we earning it by keeping it. And Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter number 1, if you'll drop down to verse number 8, I, I don't think for most of us that this will be the first time uh, you've ever seen this passage. It, you have probably uh, heard a number of messages preached on this passage. But this really gives us uh, a testimony uh, of the Lord. Second uh, Timothy 1 verse 8, Paul writes these words, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, 
who hath called us, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. We see these words that Paul writes are extremely powerful words that speak uh, not only to the testimony of Paul himself, but also to the testimony of every believer. This particular passage shows us where our faith originated from. It shows us why our faith originated. But we also see this power that uh, is given to us to keep that faith that we have. Now notice the power is not in us. The power is found in the Holy Ghost to keep that which was committed unto thee. Verse 14, Paul is speaking about the keeping of this faith. Now, there are sadly those who believe that their faith, even saving faith, uh, comes and goes. That it comes and goes with the times. It comes and goes with the seasons, if you will. But what Paul is proving here, and even all the way back in verse number 8, is he is proving our saving faith by how we view and how we respond what the gospel has done. We understand that when we look at the cross, uh, we as believers see something uh, beautiful, not in what happened there per se and it's in its carrying out of the execution, but we know that to the world, it's a shameful thing to die on a cross. But what Paul is writing about here, when he talks about the testimony of the Lord, he's, he's drawing our eyes to the attention that needs to be paid to Christ on the cross. That shameful cross is not a thing to be ashamed of for those who possess faith. We look to the cross as a most glorious and honorable thing because we know that the gospel first afflicted. It afflicted our Lord. He was, he was afflicted. He was, he was taken uh, with, with these, the passions and the sufferings that came with it. His testimony is, is that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he suffered great affliction. Now, when we suffer great affliction, we're afflicted not for the sake of affliction, but we are afflicted because of the gospel. Notice again, verse 8, Paul says, be not ashamed of the testimony. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't be ashamed. And Paul goes one step further and says, don't be afraid of me who is a prisoner because of the cross. Paul's imprisonments were always based upon his proclamation of the gospel. 
And so Paul very clearly here says that there is affliction that comes with the testimony of Christ and, of course, as a result, those who are in Christ. But remember that it is the very fact of the cross, the very fact of the gospel, that gives us the very power of God that appears in us. Saving faith is not just a concept. It is actually the power of God within us. Now, I'm not talking about some power that allows us to lift great weight. I'm not talking about physical power. But I am talking about the power of God is that which appears in us in the form of the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul at the end of verse verse 14 says, keep this faith by the power of the Holy Ghost. I am in no way keeping my faith secure in and of myself. My faith is kept secure by the power of God which dwelleth in me, which is the Holy Spirit. I can no, in no way secure my faith, nor can I keep my faith. The gospel, of course, when it is first preached, and the gospel every time it pre- is preached, it afflicts the hearer. What does it afflict them with? It reminds them and calls onto the, onto the mat their sin. A gospel message that does not afflict is not a gospel message at all. It afflicts us because it puts its finger right on man's greatest problem, which is sin. So this power of God. Verse 9, Paul begins to talk about the benefits of how God has abounded toward us. Notice how Paul writes boldly. And he writes constantly about the glory which comes with our salvation. Notice the phrase, who hath saved us? Who has saved us? It is the Lord has saved us and called us. We've studied that effectual calling with a holy calling. These are the very causes of our salvation. Notice the cause of salvation is given before even reminding us how it didn't come. It came through the power of God. It came from the free eternal purpose of God to save us in Christ. Isn't it interesting, and we'll look at this in just a moment, that this was given to us according to verse number 9 in Christ Jesus before the world began. We were given this faith, this salvation before the world ever began. Imagine this for a moment. Something that's given to you before the world has began is not something that might come about. It's not something that's made possible. It's something that you were actually given before the world began. It will come to pass. One of the great hope I have, one of the great many, many hopes I have today is that he will lose none of his own. And when I think this morning and I think about those who may right now at this moment be outside of the body of Christ outwardly, the the reminder of what Paul is telling Timothy here is, is they will not be left behind. And again, it's difficult in our humanity to wait. It's difficult in our humanity to wait on God. But understand, we were freely called of God by the preaching of the gospel. We dealt a little bit about this preaching of the gospel last week. And I think even the question came up in the the Q&A about uh, what if somebody hasn't heard? Uh, Do you realize in the sovereignty of God, uh, God is not under any obligation to show mercy to anyone, nor is he under obligation to make sure everybody hears 
Now that's a difficult concept for us to grant, to get humanly speaking, but somehow we have gotten in our mind's eye that it's only fair if God allows everyone to hear. But why did we hear? By the mercy of God. No obligation. When we say, God, you are obligated to show mercy to this person, God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. If mercy becomes an obligation, it ceases to be mercy. We have, to keep in, we have to keep in mind here the difference between mercy and what we think is fair. Remember, it's the preaching of the gospel that destroys sin, but it also destroys Satan, who is the, 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 the picture of death and the picture of corruption. So when does Paul say that this grace was given? It was given before the world began. But let's back up. Not according to our works. Now that reminds us that this is his work, not ours. And it was given not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. The purpose of God. So grace was given us from everlasting, from eternity. So what is faith, really? Faith is embracing grace. Now again, how we get there is the key to what saving faith really is. We were, and here's that word that will, will cause a firestorm in many churches, we were predestinated from everlasting or from eternity. We did not receive saving faith based upon our foreseen faith that we would somehow one day wake up and come to faith on our own, nor was it by foreseen works. Now, there is an entire doctrine that's built around that. They use the word predestination, and their definition of predestination is this, is that God knew who would receive him and who would reject him. The problem is this. Regeneration precedes faith. So a man must be regenerated before he can have faith. We get this backwards and say, no, my faith regenerates me. No, regeneration precedes faith. How can a person who is so depraved and corrupt suddenly decide to do something so gloriously and perfectly righteous as accepting Christ by my own faith? Again, those are firestorm phrases I just used. I'm talking like burn building down phrases. Because there's a whole other camp that says, no, faith precedes regeneration. Biblically speaking, regeneration precedes faith. A man must be born again before he can see the kingdom of God. An unregenerate man cannot even see the kingdom of God. Even in, its, in, in, the, even in a speck, he or she can't see it. So why is Paul spending so much time with this? Well, he is clearly showing that the grace of God and saving faith comes through and by the gift of God. Now, throughout the course of years, okay, um, which has been running since the beginning of the world, uh, the years will continue as God sovereignly allows the years to continue. But every believer who's in this building today, you were given the gift of faith in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
You did not get that on September 12th of 1982. That's not where it arrived. You were given the gift before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus, which is even more amazing because Christ Jesus had not even come to this earth in the incarnation, yet it's through Christ. Notice verse number 10. Here's the difference. But now is made manifest or revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's how you can look at this. All that Paul writes about in verses 8 and 9 was not fully revealed until Christ revealed it. Does everybody see that? That's when it was revealed. But it's always been there. What Paul is writing about here is that the gospel saving faith was revealed when Christ appeared in its entirety. And look what it says, who hath abolished death by his manifesting himself, abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Two things that his revealing or manifesting did. It abolished death and it brought life. What an amazing truth this is. Through Jesus Christ and through his manifesting of himself, he caused life and immortality to appear. He didn't give the opportunity to choose life. He actually gave, caused life. You realize there's a difference between causing life and choosing life? Do you realize the chasm that rests between those two? And really, Christianity in its modern form today is based upon those two pillars? I'm either the cause of life, right? or the cause of life was given to me, or I choose life, right? I was given life or I choose life. Now, which one is Paul saying? That we choose life or that we're given life? We're given life. We're given life through the eternal purposes of God, not by an act of foreseen faith or works. So how does Paul say that this came about? That's why he inserts this phrase about the reminder of who he is. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. This is really kind of a strange insertion if you look at it on its surface. But it's almost as if Paul wants them to be reminded of something. This is what God called me to preach is the very message in which I just gave you. That, in fact, is what the gospel looks like. That you have been saved and called by a holy calling, not according to your own works, but according to his own purpose, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When we give the gospel wrongly, we're not to look at somebody and say, now will you choose life? Now remember, there's still a responsibility. They're not choosing life as if they're giving life unto themselves. What's happening is the very gift that was given to them, there is now a recognition of what had been given. There's a tremendous difference in these truths today, folks. There's a tremendous difference in the words in which I'm saying that we really need to grasp. And I know many of you are grasping this and have grasped it. But there are still some who struggle with the reality of at what point does this become my choice? Again, that is overrunning our society. My choice, my choice, my choice, my choice, my choice, my choice, my rights. That should never infiltrate the gospel. 
Because you're not saved according to your rights. You have no right to it. You have no, you have no reason to say, I have a right for God to show me mercy. That's why God did it before the foundation of the world, so he could not leave the choice with man. Isn't that astounding? If it was left up to man, then it wouldn't have been given before the foundation of the world. It would have said, your, your choice to choose life was given to you on such and such a date. Now again, do not confuse man's sovereignty or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Right? God is still sovereign and man is still responsible to respond to that. And we've talked about that concept. So Paul confirms this is the gospel which he preached. Verse number 12 is a confirmation. This is important. Is a confirmation of his apostleship. Okay? So be careful when you're studying the Bible that you make sure you understand why he's saying what he's saying. He says for the which cause. What's the cause he's talking about? Why he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 12 answers what he's saying in verse 11. He confirms his apostleship really by kind of a, a strange argument he gives here. He's, he's, he's talking about this. He says, for which I also suffer these things. This, this gospel, this apostleship caused a strange thing. The world could not handle it and the world could not abide in it. So when a person thinks they cannot receive or accept something, what's the natural response? You reject it. You push it aside. So what do you do then? You persecute the people who are perpetrating that idea. The fact that the gospel causes so many problems should not shock you. Paul said the very reason I'm suffering persecution is for one reason and one reason only, for this gospel that the world can't stand. So in fact, it turns to me and says, we're going to persecute Paul, even though he's not the author of it, even though it's not his philosophy, his plan, he's preaching it, so he gets lumped in and we're taking him out. You realize that's the, that's the crime that many people who are losing their life today, they're being martyred for, for one thing and one thing only, preaching the gospel that the world can't stand. If you chose that for yourself, when persecution comes, you'll run from it. Folks, you don't want your saving faith based upon your hold on it. You don't want your saving faith to even be held up by the, the, the pinky on your weakest hand or your strongest hand. Choose. You don't want your faith dependent upon you in any way, shape, or form. That's the only reason Paul could write from prison and say, you know what? I'll sit here the rest of my life if I have to because I'm being kept through the power of the Holy Ghost. My faith is being held in Christ and it's being held securely and it's not dependent upon me. People are, people are tough guys until the real persecution comes. Christians are the worst at this. We are tough until we actually face it. You know, we hear someone going through a persecution in another country and they say, boy, I know, I wish God would put me in that situation. Is that really what you think you want? Because unless you're kept by the power of God, you'll step foot off that plane and you'll turn around and turn tail and get back on the plane and come back home if you're kept by your own strength and your own faith. So what is Paul doing? 
He confirms his apostleship and he sets an example before us. And here's the example. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Now look at the same thing. Verse 8, be not thou therefore ashamed. Verse number 12, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. There's your faith. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul sets forth an example. He shows us how we can be sure that we are never ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. How we can be sure that God can and will keep our salvation, which He has already laid up in heaven by Himself. My salvation is not just held within me, My salvation is secured in heaven already. My name is written in the book of life. But my righteousness, my access, my adoption is found at the right hand of the Father. My salvation is in Christ Jesus. It never was in me. What's in me is the power of God, the Holy Spirit that dwells within me to ensure that I will in fact keep this faith. That gets into the perseverance of the saints, which we're going to touch on a little bit in the coming weeks. So here's this example. Paul continues to set forth a pattern. Verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. What words is he talking about? He's talking about the words of Scripture. He's talking about the Word of God which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He shows where he ought to be the most constant and diligent, both in his doctrine, which is where his faith is strengthened. Beware, beware, beware of someone who says doctrine is really not that important. Somebody in this room, is, this is very personal what I'm saying. We've had this conversation. I won't point them out, but we've had this conversation. That's, that's what this is. And some people will say this argument, well, I just need Jesus. You don't see Jesus without doctrine. Not the the Jesus Christ of the Bible. We don't need doctrine. The reality is, is doctrine is the Word of God. Faith and notice, sound words, faith and love go together. You realize we can't even love each other properly without proper doctrine. Proper doctrine leads us to love one another the way that we should. It's a pattern. It's a way of teaching it. And then Paul finishes this particular thought with what we'll refer to as an amplification. An amplification is to take something and make it louder in the the audible terms, but this is maybe in visual and spiritual. He amplifies it. That good thing, that's faith, which was committed unto thee. Okay, what was given to thee. This is such a great benefit. Paul removes any possibility of an objection here. He says, so that you cannot object and have no reason to object, this committing was given to thee and will be kept by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. Folks, this is really a hard thing for us to grasp today. But you realize just how powerful the Spirit of God is within you. 
You know, there are, there are certain segments of Christianity that want to magnify the power of the Spirit by outward manifestations of the Spirit. They want to do miracles. They want to perform healing. They want the visual thing that everybody sees and hears, and they want to boast about what they can do. But I want you to consider something. Do you know what kind of power it takes to keep you saved? Do you know what kind of power it takes to keep your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And I'm not talking about, well, the Bible says so. Yes, I'm glad you believe the Scripture. But do you realize the power of God that keeps you is the power of God in the Holy Ghost that lives within you? And you're not the one keeping it. Now, if you were on the, the false side of this that said, well, I believe the Holy Spirit comes and goes. Do you realize how many consequences there are of that false theology? If your faith and the Holy Ghost leaves you for a split second, do you know what the implications of that are? What if you die in that split second? If you were on the wrong side of that split second, you would be, you'd be lost in hell forever. If the Holy Spirit leaves you for less than a split second, the, the tiniest number of time we could measure, if He leaves you for even that long, you would be risking and be put at risk of losing your eternity. Yet Paul says it's so far the opposite. You were given this before the foundation of the world in order that you would never leave it and it would never leave you. So what does all that do when we come to the confession? And again, that was a lengthy exposition intentionally this morning because I want us to really see what Paul was stating here. So what we have here is we have this concept of faith embracing grace. So really, this is the basis and the definition of faith. Now let's look at, verse, let's look at paragraph 2 of the confession. It says, By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God himself, and also apprehends an excellency therein above all other writings and all things in the world as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations, and so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed." and also acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is that grace which was given to you in Christ Jesus before the world began. That was based upon the covenant of grace. So the nature of faith can best be described by the ways that faith acts and faith responds to God's word. If I want to see evidence of somebody saving faith, the best way to see that is how their faith acts and how their faith responds. What do we mean by that? Well, 
what, what Paul wrote about and what the confession is writing about here is first of all that faith is based on the word of God. Now what I mean by based is, is that faith is evidenced by how it acts and responds to scripture. Saving faith embraces the authority of God's word. I've said this many, many times. The greatest problem with man is their lack of submission to authority at every level. There are people today who do not believe God's word is authoritative. I will tell you, this church stands firmly on the reality that God's word is 100% authoritative and it has more authority, all the authority, even over the confession of faith. The confession of faith is not our final authority. Okay, The confession of faith is a wonderful document that points out the reality and the authority of what God's word says. That's why we use it as our statement of faith. Because it is much better than any man-made statement of faith with all of its little nuances and all of its little watering down because it lays what the Bible says out. It's authority there. So saving faith trusts everything the Bible says. You notice what I'm saying? Not parts of it, everything. All the stuff the world's laughing at you about, that you believe that? You believe all those animals fit on that boat? You really believe that? I would say you better. Saving faith doesn't look at the scripture and say, well, it's authoritative in some areas of my life and it's not authoritative in others and I believe some of it I don't believe. Look, I believe it cover to cover. Now, are there examples in the scripture of allegories and figured, you know, figuratively speaking and are there literal? Absolutely. But that doesn't affect its authoritative nature at all. The reality is it has to be so because everything believers know and trust about God, about Christ and salvation, is received through the Bible. How do you know where your faith came from today? It wasn't because I told you. It's because the Word of God told you. And it didn't say... God asked for your permission before the foundation of the world to give you this faith. It says before the foundation of the world, you were given this faith. And it's interesting, the confession actually says, uh, enabled to cast his soul upon the truth, thus believed. My soul was enabled to cast myself on the truth of the scripture and say, I actually believe it all. Everything. Stand up in your typical university or K through 12 school and say that and see what kind of a response you get. Pardon my language, you'll be labeled the town idiot. That's what our young people are facing. Their faith lived out is mocked and ridiculed. And when they say, well, why do you believe all that fairy tale stuff? They say, because the Bible declares that, and I believe the Bible, everything, because it's my authority. And they say, a book is your authority? It's not the book. It's the author of the book. I'm going to say something very carefully here. You can become a Bible worshiper and not worship God. And what I mean by that is, is you can see people, and I've seen this done in, in some of our other Christian denominations, where they have, and I'm, 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 I'm going to be very careful with this, 
they have a what appears to be a love fest with the actual binding the the cover the pages the chapter and they say i love this book look i love the author of this book this is just probably faux leather thin pages that if i shake this hard it falls apart I don't love this because it's a book. I love the author of the book. Why do I love that? Because of the saving faith that was given to me. We can become Bible worshipers. We can become worshipers of even people who proclaim to preach the Bible. Don't raise your hand, but how many have been in a church service where there was a line for the preacher to sign their Bible? What a horrendous mockery. Why would, the, why would we do that? I had, no, I had nothing to do with the authorship of that word. But yet, it's authoritative. And yet, we trust everything the Bible says. There's a number of passages that the, the uh, confession points to, and I'm not going to cover all of these. I'd encourage you during these studies, remember, we're not covering every single verse, and, and th this will rely on your own studying. But Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, I love the description here. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Isn't that the phrase that Paul used? Do not be afraid of this testimony of our Lord. Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Drop down to verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The psalm writer writes as a person who has 100% saving faith. And yet that author was God ultimately, but David was the penman. So this is the reason that the confession of faith, our confession of faith we use starts in chapter one, why we started many years ago now with the doctrine of scripture and not the doctrine of God. It's the first chapter in the confession deals with the doctrine of scripture. Why? Because it sets forth the reality that everything we need to know about God is received and revealed in the scripture. Now we understand that there is general knowledge Right? Romans talks about general knowledge that any man can receive just through creation. But do you realize that general knowledge is not enough to save and convert the soul? Nobody is converted just because they saw the beauty of a mountain or an ocean. Okay, the preaching of the word, the hearing of the gospel, the response to the gospel. An important conclusion to draw here is that people who profess to be Christians but deny the complete and full trustworthiness of Scripture, if that's you today, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, you hold an inconsistent view of what saving faith really is. So if today you say, you know what, I, 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 I trust most of the Bible, but I have a little bit of, I just don't complete, completely trust it. But let me ask you a question. Then how can you trust your saving faith? If you don't trust God's word, 
How can you trust a nebulous idea of what saving faith is? Because it's the word that it reminds you and then strengthens and helps you see this is what saving faith looks like. It would be really hard, I think, for me personally, maybe you don't feel this way, it would be really hard for me to cast my entire soul on a Christ who has revealed himself in the scriptures and then in turn, I don't trust those scriptures. I wouldn't go, I, I couldn't, I, I would walk away from the faith if I can't trust this book. And I mean that. I would walk away because I would have no basis. Now again, this particular edition of the scripture with the faux leather top front and the thin pages, no. The confession of faith, is that where my, no. My saving faith is based on the authority of the writer of the scriptures. Isn't it amazing that God in his sovereignty and providential hand just decided, I'm going to give you a book written by all these authors and it's going to be consistent? By the way, the amazement of the inspiration of scriptures is mind-boggling. How all the authors of the scriptures wrote and not a single one of them contradicted each other. Some of our kids are being taught that the Bible's filled with contradictions. It isn't if you study context and you study truthfully and you study the word of God for what it is. There is no contradictions. So that's the first aspect. Secondly, and we'll stop with this second point, saving faith appropriately responds to everything revealed in Scripture. The, really, the language in paragraph 2 is really astounding with the way it frames this. What saving faith truly does is saving faith embraces and acts on the truth revealed in Scripture. That's what it's doing. So what does saving faith do? It obeys the commandments, it trembles at the warnings, and it embraces the promises of Scripture. Obeys, trembles, and embraces. You realize we have people today who are trying to find ways to get out of the commandments of God instead of here's what I need to be doing is obeying the commandments of God. The question isn't any longer, what does God's word say about this? But now it is more, what is God a little more lenient on? What about trembling at the warnings? I want to give you just one of these, and this is in the book of Isaiah 66, verse 2. Of course, Isaiah, as a, as a preacher, gave the word in a way that many other prophets couldn't and didn't. But verse 1 of that chapter says this, Isaiah 66, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I love this question. Because if this doesn't tremble you to the very soul, where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? You talk about putting it right where they are. He's telling the nation of Israel, where is that temple that's built for my glory? Where is that place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made. In other words, he says, your hand has nothing to do with these things. And all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look. 
He puts it out there. He says, I don't look to the pride-filled man. I don't look to the person who doesn't tremble at the warnings of Scripture. He says, but here's the man I'll look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Folks, I'm not asking this for an emotional response. But when is, when is the last time you trembled at the word of God? We make and have made such a light of God's scriptures that we've lost our reverence for the God of those scriptures. This has happened at every level. From the cartooning of scripture, which I've told you, there's not a lot of things that bother me in the, just a regular Christian world than that. Because we think our children can't handle these great truths. They can handle these great truths at their own level at the right time. You'd be shocked at what our littlest ones in this building can actually handle. And what they remember. And what they hear. In reality, what faith really is, faith results in good works and in obedience. James 2 verses 18 and 19. But finally, here's the third thing, and most importantly, the main acts of saving faith relate directly to Christ. The Bible describes believing as coming to Christ, John 6.35, and as receiving Christ, John 1.12, and trusting in Christ, Ephesians 1.12. So what does a believer actually do when they exercise saving faith? The easiest way to put this and the simplest way to remember it is they cast their souls on Jesus Christ for everything they need in this life and the life that's been prepared for them. Saving faith casts its entire soul on Christ because Christ is the one that's revealed in the Scriptures. That is the basis and the definition of what this saving faith looks like and faith embraces grace. All right? So next week, we'll move into uh, paragraph three and still be making some reference to paragraph two. We didn't quite exhaust all of that, but we will look into that. And we'll look next week, begin this concept of persevering faith. How long does this faith endure? Okay. All right. Anybody have any questions this morning? Any questions? Maybe not a question, but maybe a comment. Anything like that. I don't have a actual question for us today. So if we don't have any questions from you or comments, we'll just leave it at that today. Mm-hmm. The trust is a result of saving faith. You trust because you have saving faith. It's the order. But trust is a part of that. Skylar.
Oh yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? It's, that's that's putting it that's putting it right where it is. Jake. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, It says, Therefore say this to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have proclaimed among the nations wherever you went. And I will vindicate my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And Mm -hmm. the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. Mm -hmm. But I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from amongst the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you mm. from all your filthiness from your idols and I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will take a heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Mm. And then later down in 32 it says, not for your sake Amen. Um, and I, I think it sums it up so well that he's going to take out the heart stone and give us 